this is working. Um, this is the last round of panel discussion before um, Andrew uh, does the Herculean task of summing up four hours of conversation. Um, I have with me, to my immediate left, uh, Flick Drummond, Conservative MP for Leon Valley in Hampshire, uh, focused in her career on education policy, but also foreign affairs, uh, especially the Middle East, and a, dare I say, friend of Palestine. Uh, to, to her left, uh, Bambos Charalambos, MP, uh, Labour MP for Enfield Southgate, and the Shadow Middle East Minister since 2021. And to his left, uh, Dr. Philip Whitford, MP, Scottish National Party, uh, MP for Central Ayrshire, uh, SNP spokesperson currently on Scotland uh, in the Commons since last year, having been health spokesperson and was a medical volunteer in Gaza in the 1990s and regularly returns, focusing on breast cancer, working with medical aid for Palestinians. We don't have with us because of illness, um, sadly, uh, Leila Moran, the uh, Liberal Democrat MP for Oxford Western Abingdon, spokesman for spokesperson for the Liberal Democrats on foreign affairs. But I do have a, uh, a statement by her, which I'll read out when it was her turn, which is uh, coming forth. We've heard a lot of words today. They're important words. I'll, I'll be very brief about them, but it, it, may, it may help just to set the scene. We've heard upholding international humanitarian law, apartheid, call it what you will, fragmentation, discrimination, um, annexation, de facto or de jure, accountability, which is in the title of our uh, event. In the context of international humanitarian law, support for the ICC and indeed acceleration of the ICC process, and support for the inquiry uh, channeled to the ICJ in December, which the UK government chose to vote against. Uh, the closure of Gaza, 16 years in the making. Democratic renewal in Palestine itself, and the need for a parliament in Palestine to hold its authority to account. UK aid down from 80 million pounds in 2020-21 to 10 million now. I could go on, but I won't because we want to hear from our parliamentarians. Um, my suggestion is that each speaks for uh, a few minutes to set out their own thinking, and then we have a discussion among ourselves, then turn to Andrew. If I may start with Flick. Thank you very much. Uh, so, Vincent, can you hear me? Thanks, great. Um, and also, thank you very much to the previous panel, Melanie, Shaw, and Francesca and Suhad for leading that amazing discussion, which I was privileged to come in to listen to. Um, and definitely, Shaw, uh, a visit to Palestine is definitely on. And I'm off, I think, a week on Sunday, Kabu, aren't I, if it's still going ahead? And I've been before, too. It's a fantastic country. Although I'm here speaking in a personal capacity and not the representative of my party or the government, uh, I do welcome the appointment of Lord Ahmed as Minister for the Middle East at the FCDO. He is a respected um, figure with a long experience in this field, 
And you'll have also heard from Saida Vasi this morning. Um, she and I, oh no, early this afternoon, I think. Um, she and I have re-established the Conservative Friends of Palestine. And we have many, um, surprisingly many friends in the party. Um, and that will grow as time goes on. UNRWA and direct aid from the UK must aim not just to support them day to day, but also to create a stable Palestinian authority. So our policy of a two-state solution can be a reality, if that's what people want. There needs to be some discussion about whether that is the future outcome. UK aid for state building at just over 1 million could be increased out of our total aid spend um, since 2018, which is just over 190 million. Now, I have personally pressed the UK government to recognise Palestinian sovereignty, and I will continue to do so. I always say to the ministers behind the scenes, there's no point talking about two-state solution if you're not recognising one of them. The weakness of the Palestinian Authority is, though, a clear barrier to that happening, which is why state building is so important, and I'll come back to that in a minute. We must also make sure that on one hand in, gov in, in government does not frustrate the good intentions, sorry, the what, that one hand in government does not frustrate the good intentions of the other, as we saw the Treasury's threat to sanction a number of charities working in Palestine this spring, and I think you've been talking about that earlier. We must recognise the importance of NGOs, including Defence for Children International, who you heard from, um, which is one of those sanctioned by the Israelis. And I was so pleased that the UK government has not followed up on the Israeli ban on the activities of those six groups. It has committed to working with them as appropriate. And it's also made it clear to the Israelis that groups monitoring Israeli conduct as legitimate as those delivering aid directly. But I just want to come back very quickly to the vital issue of strengthening the Palestinian Authority. The consequences of the collapse of the Palestinian Authority be extremely grave. It's already clear that it struggles to demonstrate legitimacy to its own people. It's seen as a subcontractor for the Israeli government rather than a body capable of negotiating with Israel and the international community as an equal partner. And there has to be a danger that, uh, that a collapse of the, PA, of, of the Palestinian Authority when President Mahmoud Abbas departs. It'll clearly, it will clear the way for annexation of the West Bank by Israel and a further extension of the human rights abuses that we discussed today. And the point is that he hasn't put any succession planning into place. And I think that is one of the greatest threats to Palestine at the moment. The future of Palestine depends on its attitudes and outcomes for its young people. So it is deeply worrying that Israel has just demolished a school paid for out of EU funds. And the UK will have contributed to that as well in Jabhat Adib. There are 58 schools across Area C currently threatened with demolition because of the failure of the Israeli authorities to provide permission for them. Now, Israel has a very highly rated education system from infants to advanced research. It is especially cruel then that it denies Palestinian children the opportunity to learn and grow. A wider education on both sides of the issues, hopes and fears, each, each has its only way in the long term to build about peace and overcome prejudices. As Sir Vincent said, education is my, one of my real passions and I do believe that that will be the future of Palestine if we can get that right. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. Just, just a quick comment on, on Lord Ahmed. I don't, I don't, I haven't met him. Uh, I know that he went to the region recently and visited Hebron, went to Mazafayata, prayed at Al-Aqsa. Um, the issue is not knowledge. The knowledge is there. And the knowledge is there at, at, at all levels of, uh, of, of government. 
Um, I do believe he's personally well disposed. Uh, the issue then is implementation. Bambos, over to you. Uh, thank you, Vincent. And it's a pleasure to be here to speak on behalf of the Labour Party. And I'd very much like to thank the Balfour Project for organising this uh, very important conference. I think it's the first one that's uh, in person for a while, so that's uh, a very welcome. Uh, and it's been great to have such uh, excellent, well-informed voices speaking here together today. And uh, many people I recognise and have had meetings with uh, uh, over the previous months uh, and days. So I, I'd just like to begin by reiterating my commitment once again as the Shadow Minister for the Middle East and North Africa to stand in solidarity with the Palestinian people and to continue with our efforts towards realization of, a, of Palestinian rights and a Palestinian state, which is key to creating a just and peaceful future for both Palestinians and Israelis. The Labour Party is wholeheartedly committed to the right of self-determination for both Palestinians and Jewish people. And that must mean two states for two people, for two peoples. But today, this vision of a peaceful future feels like a distant hope. It's been utterly tragic to witness the escalation of violence in recent months, and yet more Palestinians and Israelis have lost lives. And this has already been, as people have mentioned, one of the deadliest years in recent times. And in the past few weeks, with the escalation of violence in Gaza, we've seen civilians once again paying a terrible price. So uh, we, the Labour Party, utterly condemn the indiscriminate rocket attacks on Israel by Hamas and PIJ, uh, these are unjustifiable attacks on Israeli civilians, and this violence only hurts the Palestinian cause and leads us further away from the path of a lasting peace. And the cycle of violence must end, and I believe that every Palestinian and Israeli deserves a just solution to this conflict. But we cannot deny, however, that the ongoing occupation of the Palestinian territories is a fundamental obstacle to peace and the cause of significant human rights violations against Pal Palestinian people. We've had harrowing accounts today about the situation on the ground for Palestinians, and I too have seen this uh, with my own eyes and felt the impact of the occupation firsthand uh, alongside a delegation of MPs visiting the West Bank and East Jerusalem last year, uh, organised by Kabu and MAP. The continued enforcement of the occupation means Palestinians are subject to home demolitions, forced displacement, settler violence, movement restrictions, arbitrary detention uh, and systematic discrimination. And Gaza has faced a punishing blockade for 16 years, which has contributed to the humanitarian and health crisis, which has once again come into sharp focus. The continued blockade of Gaza must come to an end, and the restrictions have placed extraordinary pressure on economic life, health services, and the well-being of ordinary citizens, the majority of whom are dependent on international humanitarian aid. The brutal reality of the occupation is difficult to convey, and we saw many examples during our visit last year. From the Israeli military detention system and its draconian impact on Palestinian children, to the demolition of Palestinian homes and communities, forced evictions, demolition orders, and the huge expansion of illegal settlements in the occupied territories. I'll focus briefly on the second area as it, is, as it, it demonstrates both the realities on the ground today and the challenges the UK government faces in its approach to the conflict. Earlier this month, I raised my concerns about the 58 schools in the West Bank and East Jerusalem at risk of demolition, including the donor-funded Jubed Ad Deeb School near Bethlehem. Uh, I raised that during uh, the last FCDO questions. Uh, I urged the Foreign Secretary to join 
the British Consulate uh, General in Jerusalem uh, and demand that the Israeli government reverse these demolitions uh, and protect the rights to education for all. Um, and in response, uh, and I'm going to quote the Foreign Secretary, he said, um, Israel knows the UK's long-standing position on settlements, evictions and demolitions, which is clear. They are illegal under international law and the limits uh, the chances of success and lim they limit the chance of success of a two-state solution. We raise that directly with Israel and Israel must listen uh, to what uh, when we do. But days later, it was reported that Israeli forces had demolished uh, Jubed and Deep School directly impacting on 81 Palestinian children and in violation of international law, including the Universal Declaration of Human Rights and the UN Convention on the Rights of the Child. Uh, and indeed, paragraph two of the article, article 17 of the uh, United Nations uh, uh, Universal Declaration of Rights states that no one shall be arbitrarily deprived of his property. But despite this, and despite the UK's clear position on these issues, the Israeli government seems to be pursuing a policy of forced evictions and demolitions. More than 1,000 Palestinians face eviction in Masafa Yatta in the South Hebron Hills, and Palestinians in Silwan and Sheikh Jarrah districts of East Jerusalem and Kanal Ahmer face a, sim a similar fate. So far this year, there have been 63 demolitions in East Jerusalem alone. Uh, after demolition, land is often used to expand, develop settlements, uh, and develop settlements, which is illegal because of international law requires occupying powers not to move their civilian populations into occupied areas. And as the occupying power, Israel must comply with its obligations under international law. But since the formation of the new Israeli coalition government, led by Prime Minister Netanyahu alongside the extreme far-right elements, there has been a renewed assault on the rights of Palestinian ramping up inflammatory rhetoric and dangerous new moves to try and legitimize illegal settlements, uh, threatening the viability of a two-state solution. It's for these reasons that I strongly believe uh, there will not be a just and lasting peace until the occupation is brought to a permanent end and both Palestinians and Israelis enjoy security, dignity and human rights. And the Labour Party will continue to be a strong and consistent advocate for justice, human rights and international law in this conflict. However, the UK is resisting efforts to hold Israel to account within international institutions. The recently signed 2030 roadmap makes no reference to a two-state solution and continues and contains commitments that raise concerns about the government's willingness to apply diplomatic scrutiny to breaches of international law and their support for the role of the of it, and independence of the international legal institutions such as the ICJ and ICC. The UK's capacity to be an honest and consistent uh, diplomatic interlocutor with credibility on all sides relies on a consistent approach to the application of international law. There needs to be more accountability and the UK government should be challenging human rights abuses wherever they occur. So finally, I'd like to end by reiterating our steadfast commitment to a negotiated diplomatic based um, solution on two states, a thriving and sovereign Palestine uh, along a Palestinian state alongside a safe and secure Israel. We believe there can be no viable peace settlement without a Palestinian state to respect and honor the Palestinian people's rights to self-determination. They must have a viable sovereign democratic state of their own. For more than a decade, Labour has consistently supported the principle of recognizing the Palestinian statehood as part of, of continuing steps to achieve a comprehensive negotiated two-state solution. We believe statehood for Palestinians is not a gift to be given, but a right to be recognized. And uh, as we reflect on 75 years 
the UK's historic and moral obligations remain clear, and we have a duty to do all we can to foster peace, the rule of international law, and the sanctity of human rights. Thank you. Thank you. Can I just make a personal remark on, on, on the word recognition? Um, when I was in Jerusalem in 2011, uh, there was an argument, a debate about recognizing the state of Palestine. Uh, I was in favor. And the argumentation that I've got now, 13 years on, is regardless of whether we end up with two states, one state, or the mess that is there now, um, changing the mindset of the British is an important act. And the mindset of the British needs to be one of equality, equality. And the way to get to equality in my head, politically in the circumstances of our own country is to regard Israelis and Palestinians as equal. The Israelis have a state. The Palestinians need a state, need self-determination in whatever form. And I think recognition by the British government of Palestine as a state would be a step forward in that direction. Whatever the eventual outcome, wherever the borders eventually end, whoever eventually democratically rules. That's enough from me. Um, may I turn to Philippa? Uh, thanks very much. Um, and, and I have to agree utterly uh, with Flick. I also use the same phrase. There's no point in talking about a two-state solution if you don't recognize two states. You simply don't have both sides at the table. And that's part of the problem, the utter imbalance of power. And of course, as has been highlighted, it goes back decades and decades and decades. Now, I worked as a medical volunteer in Gaza in 91 and 92, just after the Gulf War, the first Gulf War, uh, and during the first Intifada. Um, I was there working in Al-Akhli Hospital in Gaza when the Madrid Peace Conference started uh, that led to the Oslo Accords. And the whole of Gaza looked like it was going to go up in flames, actually, that day. My husband and I lived in the hospital and we had seven chest injuries in by 7.30 in the morning and no other staff could get in because Gaza was just chaos. And I thought, this is going to be disastrous. But one of the most enduring images from my time in Gaza was at about four o'clock in the afternoon, we were out on the balcony of the intensive care unit, we'd operated, we'd got people stabilized, and we looked down onto Palestine Square, which used to be the center of Gaza City, and we watched the Shabab, the young teenagers, climbing onto Israeli armored cars with olive branches. And that moment of hope, that expectation that they had, that their life, their future was going to change utterly from this peace process. And here we are over 32 years later, and we've let them down, frankly, we've let them down. Now, when I lived there in 91 and 92, we still had settlers, we still had the IDF in Gaza. So you were talking about clashes, you were talking about occupation, you were talking about clashes with settlers or settlers' attacks. I've had the chance, again, with Medical Aid for Palestinians, who I was a volunteer with, to go back to Gaza since 2016, after I became an MP. 
When I went in 2016, by then I no longer did general surgery or trauma. I purely specialized in, in breast cancer, but they did agree to let me go on a fact-finding mission. And I found that the care for women in Gaza was just appalling. And I know that you heard figures from MAP earlier, but the earlier figures from kind of earlier in the last decade, the survival was only 43%. So it was literally half the rate of someone here, but not just half the rate of someone here living five years with breast cancer, half the rate of a woman living five miles along the road in Ashkelon. This is not sub-Saharan Africa. This is not women who live a thousand miles from a clinic. This is utterly political the difference between the outlook of women in Gaza and, of course, in the West Bank and women in, in Israel. And I think recognition is absolutely critical to this because you have to recognize the sovereignty of the Palestinian people to actually engage in any kind of process to move things forward. And for us here, who are supporters of Palestinians, we have to keep coming back to international law. The settlements are illegal. Profiteering from settlement goods are illegal. Companies in the city of London who make money, as Francesca highlighted, or your pension fund is invested in someone running prisons or prison vans in occupied territories. These are illegal. And we all need to keep coming back to that touchstone because we do get knocked off course. And what we were hearing earlier, obviously the, the prescription of the charities in, uh, in Israel, like DCIP, but also after the proscription of the Gaza government, Hamas, meaning that actually charities who deal with Gaza, who must interact with Hamas politicians to deliver humanitarian services, suddenly feel threatened and intimidated, as we heard from Melanie, that letter from the Treasury. It's not just whether you can fight a case like Christian Aid, it's the chilling effect of this kind of thing. And we see it in politics, we see what the Labour Party went through, and we see how much that makes it very difficult for politicians to stand up. Because I can tell you, when your head's above the parapet, it's coming off. And, and that will happen to anybody. But if you're a public figure, the attack on you is huge and is relentless. And it's difficult for all of us. And that's why the solidarity of people here in supporting each other to speak up is important. But one of the things I do, and you know, I almost feel a little bit apologetic because I come from the humanitarian side of trying to provide training and teaching to colleagues um, in Gaza. We've set up what we call a medical bridge between Scotland and Gaza. There's also one to the West Bank, but the Gaza one's been really successful. And colleagues that I recruited around Scotland, they Zoom at seven o'clock on a Tuesday morning and they run a treatment planning meeting exactly as we would in the NHS. And the transformation in the care over the last six years has just been immense. But what you can use that for is to widen the discussion heap. Because frankly, today we're doing what we always do. We're preaching to the choir. There's nobody in this room who doesn't support Palestine having a decent future and Palestinians having the rights of self-determination and their human rights. But when I get asked every October for Wear It Pink Month to go and do a talk about breast cancer, I talk about 
imagine this journey in her shoes. And I actually talk about breast cancer in Gaza. I talk about the struggle to get chemotherapy in. I talk about the fact that 35 to 40% of the patients that we need to send to Jerusalem for radiotherapy either will be refused or they'll never get an answer. And as Melanie said, we're not allowed to use radioisotopes for bone scans or sentinel node biopsies in Gaza, even though there is categorically no ability to use in any threatening way at all. And radiotherapy is a linear accelerator. It doesn't generate radioactive waste. You know, it's a failure to understand and a need for us to argue back about these things. But it does give us, whatever you're involved in, if it gives you a different angle, whether it's schools talking to schools, whether it's talking to women, whether it's talking to people in any sphere who are not in the room when we talk about Palestine, we need to use that to widen the support and widen this debate. And when we talk about two state or one state, I realize, because I was going pretty much every year until COVID hit, that what you were hearing on the ground, particularly in Ramallah, is young Palestinians talking about, oh, well, you know, we should just go for a one state solution. And, you know, it's self-determination. The final decisions will be theirs. But the problems of it are, in essence, you agree and complete annexation because you create one state. The example of how Palestinians within Israel are treated doesn't exactly give hope for an equal human rights-based civil society. And once you would have done that, and you have this incredible power imbalance inside a single Israel, it's no longer international law, it's domestic law. And so suddenly you have a different fight. Now, in the end, it might be that you have a two-state solution. And when we've moved on a generation or so, the Palestinians and the Israelis will make a different decision. But right now, the power imbalance between Israel with the backing of America and Palestine on its own is just too great for them to just be ceding their lands. And we need to support them because of that power imbalance. So I think it, it's important to all of us, and I think it's wonderful to hear from Flick that Conservative Friends of Palestine is re-emerging. I really welcome that because the current government, this deal that they've done with Israel, that they will actually shield them from criticism. This is something that's not tolerable. So the more discussion within the Labour Party, within the Conservative Party about Palestine, the more we can get it back on the floor of the House and the more everyone here can get it out wider and remember, it's an election year next year. So write to your MPs, get your friends to write to your MPs, hold local meetings and invite your MP. This is a time when they get a wee bit nervous and we need to use that on behalf of the Palestinians. Thank you. Thank you very much, Philippa. Um, I speak as a former trustee of MAP. MAP is a great institution. It does great things and it's got great people working with it. Um, but the humanitarian is 
is not the end goal, and you've made that very clear. It's, it's a means to keep people alive. The politics is where the decisions need to be made. Um, I have a speech from Leila. Leila Moran, I mentioned, is not well today, sadly. Uh, I've sent our commiserations, but uh, she's composed a, a short set of remarks, and I'd like to share them with you on her behalf. I'd like to begin by saying how sorry I am not to be with you in person today. The Balfour Project do fantastic work, and I am sure you have all enjoyed a day of fascinating debate and discussion. This week was particularly poignant and painful for Palestinians as we marked the 75th anniversary of the Nakba. 750,000 Palestinians, including my own family, were driven out of their homes. My grandfather, who was just a boy at the time, he left his home in Jerusalem in 1948. Uh, they sought sanctuary in Jericho at the Mount of Temptation and they never returned. The wounds are still felt today in my family and the families of the five and a half million Palestinian refugees around the world. So 75 years on, it is time for the UK government to recognize its historic obligation to the region. That must start with making a real effort to get back to a meaningful peace process and standing up for the rights of Palestinians to self-determination, full political rights and right of return. Liberal Democrats remain committed to a two-state solution in which Israel and Palestine both exist with secure boundaries. That's why I introduced a private member's bill earlier this year calling on the government to recognize the state of Palestine. Statehood recognition is no panacea, but it would send a powerful signal that the UK stands by the Palestinian people. Liberal Democrats are also calling for the introduction of legislation which would cease trade with illegal settlements. The proliferation of these settlements is a central pillar of the ultra-right Israeli government and is a deliberate provocation, both to Palestinians, but also to us here in the UK. If we believe in international law, we cannot stand by. To do so only serves to lose us credibility when we try to apply international law elsewhere. The expansion of these settlements must stop, and so must trade with them. As we have marked the commemoration of the Nakba this week, I, Leila, have been attacked on social media for even telling my story. It's been painful, but it's nothing compared to the pain felt by others especially those in Palestine right now. This has just shown me how important it is to commemorate the past, and I will not be deterred from working hard to secure Palestine's future. Once again, 
I am sorry to not be with you in person today, but I am sure the other panelists will offer an insightful and interesting discussion. So that's, that's later on that. We have maybe five minutes left before Andrew takes over the microphone. And I, I'd like to focus on a couple of words that we've heard today, consistency, which frankly has been lacking in government policy, the contrast between Ukraine and Palestine in terms of mindset and action is, is vast, but the same laws are being broken. Consistency in saying one thing in New York and another thing in London, uh, which is rather transparently silly in the modern world, but nevertheless is done. Um, and the word annexation. We've heard that there is an ongoing systematic system of control in of Palestinians. And that the Nakba is still with us. So my, my question to the colleagues on my left is, in the circumstances of our political situation today, and I agree strongly with Philippa, that now is the time to lobby our MPs, now is the time to say, this issue matters to me, and maybe my vote depends on it. That's an important message to get across in the next year. But in the circumstances that we're in now, pre-election, how can we generate consistency? How can we encourage the people who know things, because as we said earlier, Lord Ahmed has been to the scene, he knows the score, to address the reality and to act as well as to speak? It's a tough question. And I don't quite know who wants to take it first. You're looking at me. <laughs> I'm looking at you. Um, no, you're absolutely right. I mean, um, sadly, I haven't got a seat to fight at the next election yet. Um, I was, uh, my, the Home Secretary took the one that I wanted, which was rather infuriating. I know. Um, so, um, but, so, yeah, so, but, so I will be in a position to lobby others um, on your behalf. But no, I think the, the best thing to do is to write to your MP, particularly if they're conservative ones, um, and just constantly badge them, go and meet them, talk to them. Um, and it's quite interesting because even there, there's a sort of movement at the, at the moment, I think, across the country, um, because people have seen the, the far right wing um, Israeli government and, and been absolutely appalled. And I think capitalizing on that as well. So we've got a lot of Jewish students who are campaigning um, and, and, and others as well. So it's sort of tapping into those. But you know, from an MP's point of view, the best thing to do is to go and meet them in person um, and not send out the, the constant campaign uh, emails. So don't you do your own emails, don't do those campaign emails. I think that's the, the real point I want to put over because they'll be the ones that um, they will um, listen to and read, um, and but it's meeting them personally, I think, and explaining why you're so passionate about it that's the most important thing. Thank you. Just before I turn to perhaps to Bambos, to say a word about the, um, the role of students, we have uh, 
as part of the Balfour Project, uh, 15 fellows, postgrad or undergrad students who, some of whom are with us today helping. Um, they take an interest and are activists for equal rights. And uh, addressing the, the young is, is a, a vital action. Uh, they are the future. Um, the Union of Jewish Students has said that it doesn't want the Michael Gove bill, uh, uh, which is economic activity of uh, local councils um, and foreign affairs. Uh, the bill will come our way sooner or later this year. And it's quite, it's very important because the position of Michael Gove is that this bill is intended to address the issue of anti-Semitism. If the Union of Jewish Students is saying that's not right, and that's not the basis, we don't need it, we don't want it, free speech is what matters, free decision-making is what matters, that's an important argument to absorb and to multiply. Um, Bambos, over to you. So uh, the two things I would focus on, and I agree with everything that uh, Vic's just uh, said, are obviously uh, MPs are accountable to um, their constituents, so uh, making sure that they're on record saying something and then following it up and making sure they apply that is really important. Uh, but I think another th thing we need to do is call out discrepancies uh, in international law and human rights abuses, uh, human rights violations. So when we see those discrepancies occur, they need to be called out. So certainly uh, raising those with uh, politicians, but also making sure that uh, people in parties do call out those uh, uh, abuses is also very important. Um, but I'd also go further and say that we need to um, um, certainly change the direction uh, of uh, the government's viewpoint. Uh, if any of you follow the, um, uh, the Twitter account of the British Consulate in Jerusalem, um, they are very much uh, on message and I, you know, as well as I would disagree with what they're saying and they, they certainly highlight uh, demolitions and human rights abuses and they challenge uh, the government on that. I wish the uh, government would uh, take more notice of that one. But we need to build a coalition internationally. So it means that we need to also get um, um, other nations on board with um, uh, trying to change the policy. We can't do it just on our own. So we need to work with the international community um, to try and bring about change uh, uh, and um, make sure that the Palestinians' rights uh, are respected and, uh, uh, and we, that we get to situation we do have a, a Palestinian state uh, and we do we are able to give the Palestinians the support that they need so uh, I'm keen to try and do that uh, as much as I can with the international community uh, and make contacts now um, so that uh, uh, if we are lucky enough to form the next government then um, we can hit the ground running but uh, it won't be easy and there are uh, lots of obstacles in the way but uh, that's hopefully something that I can uh, try and make happen. Thank you, members. And Philippa. Um, yeah, I'm a member of the cross-party group in Westminster, and we also have another group that involves Vincent and other uh, non-parliamentarians, some of whom are here. Um, and we're actually quite active. And we do meet with other European parliamentarians through Zoom, um, and we discuss uh, the approach in different states, but also within the European Parliament itself. And I think one of the things that struck me is I don't think the EU has ever really thought of itself in international diplomacy. 
Um, obviously, Israel comes and sings and occasionally wins Eurovision. They see themselves as connected to Europe. They see themselves as European. And therefore, we also need to lobby the European Parliament and European uh, parliamentarians, obviously, sadly, since Brexit, we don't have any of our own, um, but to lobby others for the EU to realise the power they have when they're doing trade with Israel and around settlement goods and how you exclude settlement goods. And one of the problems here is whether they're even going to be labelled, because obviously the power over labelling, which used to actually belong in the devolved governments, is, is controlled here. So in the same way as you may not know if you're going to eat chlorinated chicken after an American trade deal, you may not know that you're buying settlement goods. And that undermines how the public were able to fight against apartheid in South Africa. We could make little simple moves that all link together to become a huge force. That's much harder here because as been highlighted, the chilling effect of being attacked as being anti-Semitic if you can, if you criticize the Israeli government, and also just through bills like the Michael Gove bill, local authorities wanting to make decisions on how they procure all of our ability as citizens in the UK to protest, to make change, to hold our government accountable are being undermined, whether it's removing the right to judicial review or the need to have photo ID to vote or to stop you being out on the street with a placard. So, you know, we need to make sure that we're keeping an eye on the plank in our own eye here because we need our own rights to hold our own governments accountable so that we can actually speak up for people in other parts of the world. Can I, can I thank our panel for uh, wisdom and for keeping it short? Thank you very much. Um, I'll now turn to Andrew. I'll just make one, one final remark, which is to say, lawyers for Palestinian human rights, some of you know them, uh, Tarek Shruru and his team, we will be consulting them after today to see where our uh, list of priorities meets theirs. Uh, they are focused fully on trying to sustain and regain and achieve Palestinian rights in this country. And that's lawyers for Palestinian human rights. Over to you, Andrew. <laughs>